hold hands and close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brandon Store. I'm Paul Bestol. This is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 182, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about but can never quite reach. Paul, my friend, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm recovering from a late night of Super Bowl fun, but we're okay. I've nearly caught up on my sleep. (laughs) Did you go out or did you have people in? I stayed in. And it was the game where we were saying, we don't need overtime. We really don't want overtime. So we got overtime. And then we had to wait an hour for my friend's taxi to arrive. So I got to bed at 5 a.m. Woof. (laughs) Yes. Even my powers of recovery have surprised me. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. I I think if I had gone to bed at five in the morning, I would, uh, I'd still be asleep. I may never wake up. (laughs) Yes. I was in bed early Monday night. (laughs) <laughs> no doubt but i'm well how about you i'm good i'm good i um I, I two things actually i i discovered recently while walking around my neighborhood here in london that there is a uh, a fairly new donut shop just across the bridge called doe ev i think and this morning i went, I went there to do some work and i had a, a uh, lemon meringue donut that was just out of this world out of, I, it was only by sheer willpower, sheer hanging on by my fingertips to what little self-control I have that stopped me from ordering another one. Good God. I love lemon meringue. Now, here's a question. Do you heat yours up when you eat it? What, lemon meringue? Yes. No. Thank God. Okay. Nikki does. And she says it's an English thing, but that seems crazy to me. And I'm so happy to know it's just her insane family. There's a lot of contradictions in this country. There are people here who don't eat mushy peas, and they're weird. (laughs) The other thing that happened, which I I thought is is much less delicious, but probably more beneficial. (laughs) I had a very lucky um, series of circumstances yesterday. I uh, had a last-minute phone call with uh, Brandon Schecksneider from Southern Gothic. We We were chatting about some stuff, and it delayed me going to the gym by about 30 minutes. So I, you know, after the call, I hung up grabbed my bag, which was already by the door, hopped in the car. That 30 minutes delayed me long enough to miss uh, quite a serious collision at the corner where I usually turn to go to my gym. Mm, That's the power of Southern Gothic. (laughs) So yeah, so I I dodged a uh, metaphorical bullet and a a literal minivan thanks to that phone call. So uh, yeah, could have been a very different morning. Fate is a fickle friend sometimes, and yet it seems to have pointed you in the right direction. I think it's because it really wanted to hear this next episode, which is, of Mm. course, a continuation of our series featuring the work of the fabulous Ruth Roper Wilde. And on this episode, we're going to be sharing more, of course, uh, from Ruth's books, These Haunted Times. Most of these stories uh, continue to come from volume one. But again, there are four volumes. We encourage you to check them out. You can read them via Kindle Unlimited, or you can buy copies as well if you'd like to do that. And on this episode, we're going to be focusing on a certain kind of of story from those books. And this is something that I've always really had an interest in, and that is ghost monks or spectral monks. So there are stories like this sprinkled throughout these haunted times. But again, these stories are primarily drawn from volume one with, I believe, one story 
drawn from volume two, but I am very much looking forward to getting into them because I, I have to imagine that you've got some, some gems up your sleeve, Paul. Indeed, indeed. Well, especially as uh, for my locality has its own alleged spectral monk infestation. Of course. I, I love the thought of infestation because now it's just like they're some kind of pest and I imagine them chasing them with those uh, extermination guns, you know, a bunch of guys in robes <laughs> sort of running away. Well, I'm very much looking forward to telling Ruth's stories. First, we got to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, we could not do what we do without you. And that goes for Apple Podcast subscribers too. And of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons, but we would especially like to thank our latest patrons. And we're going to do that on the next episode. So if you are a new patron, do not worry. You will hear your name on episode 183. But until then, we'll just say thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who supports us. This is what we do, and your support allows that to continue. So if you'd like to join the team and get bonus episodes, ad-free feed, all kinds of cool stuff, you can sign up at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys, or sign up to GST Premium via Apple Podcasts. One last thing, shout out to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and composer Harper Smith. You can find more of Harper's work at rainydaysforghosts.bandcamp.com or by searching for Rainy Days for Ghosts or Street Witch on streaming platforms everywhere. All right, now we're going to take a quick break and be right back. Our first encounter comes from Kenilworth in Warwickshire on Redfern Avenue. The original source story I found for Redford Avenue said that in 1978, a Mrs. Valerie Graham started hearing the sounds of monks chanting during the middle of the night. The sound was always most audible from the back of the house she lived in and was definitely coming from outside. Her husband was a heavy sleeper and never woke up in time to hear it. But then one day she heard the sound during the middle of the afternoon, but was astonished to find that her husband, although now of course wide awake, still couldn't hear it. She might have been left thinking she was hearing things, except that she found out that someone else further down the road had also been hearing it. When I asked locally whether anyone had heard anything, I got some interesting responses. I never say, when I go looking for fresh evidence, exactly what my source evidence was, or what the haunting is meant to manifest itself as. I just ask whether people are aware of a haunting, and can tell me of their own experiences. This is because, of course, I don't want to contaminate any responses with a preconceived notion of what they should be looking for, but neither do I want to prevent anyone coming forward, because what they experienced in the locale I'm interested in didn't fit the profile of what I was asking about. Two people casually answered that yes, of course, all the roads around there were haunted, and one told me that she had seen the apparitions of children wearing Victorian-style clothing walking down the avenue. On other occasions, she'd seen men in white shirts standing in the windows of the houses looking out. One lady mentioned that in her mum's house, she had heard male voices saying her name, 
and on one occasion the hot tap suddenly turned on full blast in front of her. She also had glasses mysteriously smashed when no one was near them. On the other hand, of course, several people answered who said that they had never heard of anything unusual in the avenue, even though at least one of them had lived there for over 40 years. And yet, one lady came forward to say that a friend of hers, who really didn't believe in anything supernatural, had once heard the sound of monks chanting down this road. Curiously, the houses there today are pretty modern terraced houses on a normal suburban housing estate. The original source story related a possible haunting to the nearby Abbey Fields, site of the Kenilworth Priory, but actually Redfern Avenue doesn't really seem close enough to that to be necessarily linked. One lady told me that the story she had heard was that as around the end of August or the beginning of September each year, people would sometimes hear the sound of a woman begging for help in the wee small hours of the morning. However, if they then try to investigate the sounds by going outside, the noise instantly stops. She said that the tale she had heard was that a lady had been attacked and robbed along there sometime in the 18th century, and during the attack, her baby daughter was struck and killed. The sound of the crying is said to be her spirits returning to the site and begging for the life of her poor innocent baby daughter to be spared. My witness had herself heard the sound many years ago, and remembered that when she heard the sound, she'd felt very unsettled by it, even though she had not at first realised she was listening to anything supernatural. It had started quite abruptly, and had made a jump because at first the sound seemed to be literally right behind her. The thing that really unsettled her, however, was that the sound itself seemed to come from different directions, depending on how she tilted her head around, trying to locate it as she walked. There was no wind that day to be carrying the sound, and the area was very quiet. She realised that what she was hearing was not natural, even though she'd been trying in vain to tell herself that it must be an animal or something, when she reached her friend's house, to which she was walking to, and told them about the sound. Her friend explained that the ghost was known locally as the Red Girl, and was a sound they had frequently heard. Several people mentioned that there were rumours of ghosts in nearby Webster Avenue, just the other side of the railway track, because there used to be a convalescence home there run by nuns. Interestingly, one person mentioned that Abbey Fields was supposed to have the spirit of the Red Monk walking through it, so one can't help but wonder whether the story of the Red Girl and the Red Monk have somehow become mixed up over the years. I was also told that the property in Sunshine Close which is mostly modern chalet-style bungalows further south in Kenilworth, was haunted in 1984 by a ghost wearing a maid's uniform, complete with a mob cap. I was looking around, and it seems like the, the Kenilworth area is sort of rife with hauntings. I saw there was uh, a lot from Kenilworth Castle. Yes, Kenilworth Castle is one of those places, uh, English heritage own it, so you can visit it and uh, have a wander around the... Uh, the ruins of, of, of what's left. Um, and it's they've often said that it's probably one of their most haunted locations because they did a book a few years ago on the English heritage, which was which is brilliant. And you can pick it up second hand fairly cheaply these days. And that's I believe is supposed to be haunted by the spirits of monks to the point that the staff all speak quite openly about the monks wandering about places they shouldn't be and 
occasionally people will claim to hear the sounds of chanting. So the, the monk thing is, is kind of spread all through Kenilworth. And spread all over England. <laughs> As we'll learn in this episode, yeah, it really is. Well, it's, I think it's, it's one of those things because some people will, will kind of say that it's part of a wider phenomenon and, and people aren't necessarily seeing monks. They're just seeing figures with cowls on or, or just wearing hoods. And therefore, because of the modern interpretation of what a monk looks like is to wear a hood, that people automatically presume it must be a monk. But obviously there was lots of different types of monks from different denominations and not all of them wore hoods. It kind of go- reminds me of, of things we've talked about in the past where there's this sort of, there appears to be like a layer of interpretation involved. You know, like I, I was thinking, um, I, I said to you off air, I, I was listening to your most recent episode with Chad Lewis and he mentioned a story that really kind of twigged my, twigged my, my notice and it was the story of the dog, I think it was a dog man that was said to be running pace with something, but it was it was wearing a, um, a uh, I want to say like a dinner jacket or a smoking jacket. Yeah, that, with um, the leather patches on the elbows. But it was plaid, and it's such. I mean, it's a goofy image, but at the same time, it it kind of fits with this this thing we've talked about in the show before, where people are seeing something that involves a plaid pattern. And so, I mean, obviously, it's very possible it's just a werewolf, you know, doing his whole teen wolf thing. Or there could be a, an element of, of visual interpretation going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a strange thing because it's quite a distinctive jacket to wear as well, especially the ones with the patches on because it automatically conjures up an image of a, a college professor that's secretly a lycanthrope. What's his name? Lupin? We, you and I were talking about Harry Potter in the patron segment? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so why not? Stranger, th- stranger things have been reported. And, and as me and Chad were saying, you know, it's one of those... It's one of those how strange is strange that you you find there aren't many reports of people encountering Bigfoots wearing clothing, but they're there if you look for them. And it's the same with dogman reports. So are they seeing dogmen or werewolves? And therefore, once again, what is the difference? And folks, check out the most recent episode of Mysteries and Monsters. But Chad talks about meeting a guy who told him he was a werewolf. Yes. And it's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. <laughs> the, and again, folks, listen to it for the full story. But he basically said this guy said he... He lives, he's a werewolf and he lives with his pack mates in a house with no doors. And I nearly lost my mind because I, I just heard about a swinger hotel that's opened recently in New York City where there is one particular floor that's, I guess, super swinger land and there are no doors, just beaded curtains. And so it's good to know that werewolves and a bunch of middle-aged people who are banging each other are apparently subscribing to the same interior design magazines. <laughs> There was another one I wanted to ask you about, came up when I was reading about Kenilworth. It was mentioned in a book called Illustrated Tales of Warwickshire by S.C. Skillman, and it was the Crackley Wood Sprite. Have you heard of this? No, I hadn't heard of it. It's one of those old books that there are numerous ones that I think uh, when you start digging into them, there are, there are hundreds of these little books with, with wonderful little stories. So I wasn't aware of it, no. Okay, yeah. So I, I could only find it in reference to that book. So either they've collected it from a rare source or I mean, it's possible they just made it up too. But yeah, so I have to see if we can grab a copy of that because I'm kind of curious. I wonder if maybe at some point, I know we were talking about trying to get Joe Hickey Hall on the show. I wonder if she's had heard something about the uh, the Sprite of Crackley Woods. Maybe, yes. Yeah, because it's a fairly, it's not, a, a, it would seem that it's a, a classic story, really. It seems to have lots of hallmarks of of the kind of, 
rebirth of these sprites and, and the Fae that seems to be going on, especially over here at the minute. I would not be surprised if there are more of these encounters lurking out there for us to discover. This story comes from Oak Hill Park in Barnet, Outer London. In 1985, according to one source, a couple called Jill and Malcolm were walking through the park after midnight when they encountered a black form floating a little way above the ground. They thought they were seeing the slow-moving shape of a headless human form and became particularly alarmed when it seemed to, to turn towards them. They very quickly left, running in panic out of the park. The same source describes another encounter in the same park, but much earlier, in the 1950s. On this occasion, a lady called Valerie was walking through the park in the early evening, on their way to meet up with other friends. Although early, it was the time of year when the sun had already set and night was falling. They saw a gentleman sitting on one of the park benches wearing old-fashioned clothes from an earlier era and a hat. Their path was taking them towards him, and they could clearly see him as he was illuminated by one of the lights near the bench. They were actually looking at him when he simply vanished, scaring Valerie's friends so badly that she collapsed screaming to the ground. The same figure apparently appeared in the background of a photo taken in the 1970s, even though the photographer was certain no one living had been in sight at the time. One lady told me that when she was about five or six years old, she had seen a ghostly rider on a horse in the park and had told her nan about what she had seen. Her nan had assured her it was probably just someone dressing up. However, a few years later, she heard at school one day that there was meant to be a ghostly rider in the park and realized that actually she had seen it. Another lady told me that her parents also had an encounter with a ghostly horse and rider around 70 years ago, sometime in the early 1940s. Several people told me that they spent a lot of time either as children or adults in the park, and some said they made a pastime while children of watching and waiting for the ghost when the mist crawled down over the hill slowly obscuring everything, but never encountered anything supernatural. Then a lady wrote to me with her own encounter, and it seems she may well be the lady mentioned by the first source I found. She explained, When my husband and I were teenagers, about 17 or 18, this would have been around 1980, we were walking through Oak Hill Park very late one evening. It was probably approaching midnight. We were on the pathway that runs adjacent to the brook. We were walking towards the pavilion, just past where the old playground used to be. It wasn't a particularly foggy night, and it was probably late summer. A figure was coming towards us along the path. We both saw it and didn't do anything at first. Then my husband said, Can you see that? We crouched down to try and get a better look to really focus on it. It was a figure which was about one foot off the ground. It was in the shape of a man, tall and fairly slender. It looked almost as if it was someone with flared trousers on. It had a torso, but no head or neck. It was moving far faster than how its legs appeared to be moving, as if it were floating, but quickly. The figure then started to go off across the grass to our left side. When it drew level with us, we got very scared and ran as fast as we could towards the bridge at the pavilion. We then ran up the bank to Churchill Road. We do believe that had we been a few minutes earlier, we would have met it at the bridge. And this is where we understand that there were other sightings of this said ghost. We always said that if ever the local paper ran a story about the ghost, that we would approach them. In 1995, the Barnet Press ran such a story, and they printed an article about our story. I understand that this information was reprinted in a book about Barnet and this said ghost. She explained that over the years they have often thought about their strange encounter 
and have told people about it. But nevertheless, had only one of them seen it, by now they would really have started to doubt what they saw. However, because they saw it together, they have remained sure of what they saw that strange night. Yet another witness came forward and told me about the encounter her mother told her about. She explained, I spoke to my mum, and the story she had been told goes as follows. My grandfather was walking home to East Barnet Village after seeing my grandma when they were still courting, and his route took him along the side of Oak Hill Park. It was very late at night, and he noticed a man walking towards him who seemed to be dressed quite strangely in a long, dark cloak and a big hat. As they approached each other, my grandfather politely tipped his hat and spoke a cordial greeting. The stranger gave no reply nor any sign of accepting the politeness, which my grandfather thought was rather rude. As they passed one another, my grandfather turned to look back at the man with a frown, but was astonished to find there was not a soul to be seen. Another witness wrote to tell me the story of an encounter her father had near the park. My father told of a journey home from visiting my mum before they were married from New Barnet to Wood Green. This would have been some time when they were courting, between 1945 and 1949 when they married. It was very late one Christmas Eve, and he was riding his motorcycle home along Churchill Road beside the park, which was on his left as he rode. He said it was a clear, crisp night with good visibility and strong moonlight. He noticed a person walking along the edge of the park, someone wearing a type of monk's habit with a cowl hood which was pulled over the person's head. As he neared, he slowed right down, wondering who would be out on such a cold night. She went on to explain that as her grandfather had passed the walker, he noticed that there were no legs or feet visible beneath the habit, and so he looked up into the cowl hood and was horrified to realize he could not see a face, just a black shadow where features should have been. He sped off on his motorcycle, shaken to the core. The next day when visiting his betrothed and her parents, he told them all about what he had seen. Her father was very interested and commented that, You saw the ghost of Geoffrey de Mandeville. He is known to walk alongside the park. My correspondent told me, My father had never heard the reports of any stories about this ghost, and so had no preconceived ideas about what he saw. He said he always accelerated a bit more when passing that bit of East Barnett after this. Her father passed away in 2012 at the respectable old age of 93, having had a good life and a career as a research engineer. But he told his tale many times over the years, and never wavered in the details of what he saw that night. Another witness remembered that as a child, there were always rumors to be heard of the ghostly lady being seen around the tunnels that took Pim's Brook under Parkside Garden. Pim's Brook runs out of the south end of Jack's Lake a little further north from the park, which also has a ghostly lady, so it's possible that there is a connection. One lady told me that tale she had heard about those tunnels. Apparently, the story went that there was once a wealthy young woman in Hadley who arranged to run away with her presumably unsuitable sweetheart, but instead was trapped by her angry father in a tunnel under Hadley Church where she died. My witness was told as a child that if you listen carefully, you can hear her ghost running along the tunnel crying to be let out, and remembers being scared out of her wits by that tale. Several other people came forward with tales about tunnels in the area running from the church or under the woods. And, Paul, I'm really curious to know, are you aware if there are actually tunnels in this I, area? I, I don't know, to be fair. It wouldn't surprise me. There's lots of secret passages all over the place. There's stories about tunnels here in Sheffield, running from the old castle up to uh, the manor where, the, uh, where they kept Mary, Queen of Scots, before she was executed. 
And do you know if there's any legitimacy to that? Uh, nobody, nobody knows. Nobody's explored it. The castle was um, blown up during the English Civil War. Oh, okay then. <laughs> and uh, it's only just been uncovered in the last five years. So we are still to discover what secrets it holds. Oh, interesting. Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm really curious because I, it's always tough to know whether it's possible there are tunnels in a place or whether that's just such a trope that people will say it. You know, I mean, I, I've heard stories about tunnels in Revelstoke. There are none. I've heard, of course, Victoria famously, people talk about tunnels all the time. And I mean, there are storm drains, but there's no real, and there's maybe a handful of little, you know, little bits of, of underground tunnel, but there's not this sort of, people have this idea of this like warren of tunnels that's just waiting to be uncovered. And I, I just don't think that's the case. Uh, but there, there seems to be something about tunnels that just people find beguiling. I mean- a lot of them kind of hark back to an era where that kind of thing would be very difficult to create. I mean, there are some places where there are tunnels. Sure. And some places that are classed as tunnels, but they're not really, like the Hellfire Caves, classed as tunnels, but they're actually you know, passageways dug into a side of a rock face. Um, and obviously a lot in Cornwall, where the smugglers used to use them, they're, you know, they're in, in a cliff face, whereas... I think the general perception of a tunnel is a sort of secret entrance that takes you under the ground. Um, like the one here in Sheffield that's supposed to exist would have to run for, I don't know, nearly a mile and a half, two miles uphill. And that's just a, like when you think about the the engineering required to make that happen, it's yeah. it, it would be extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is certainly before the Industrial Revolution and the, the coal era. So uh, I, I find it very hard to believe that there'd be a few, but you never know, you know, they used to make people do all kinds of crazy shit. <laughs> you know, oh, go, go and dig me a tunnel for three years for tuppence, tuppence and bread. I mean, I guess you think about it, there's fuck all else going on. You know, there's no premium cable yet. You got to do something with your time. Yeah, if you're not getting black death, you might as well go dig a tunnel. <laughs> what are you doing, boss? Digging. <laughs> 150 years later, the archaeologists are like, man, this must have been religious. I mean, the park, that park is notorious. It's a, it's a strange place. It, uh, it attracted a couple of strange characters, to say the least. Yeah, there's this uh, story I saw on, I think it was Barnet for You, about uh, an old oak tree that burst into flames. Ah, <laughs> uh, Joanna's tree. Yes, yes, yes. Tell, tell us about Joanna and her tree. <laughs> Joanna Southcott. Um, it's a very strange it's a strange, there are numerous people like this. She's, she's one of the most famous ones, although she's very rarely discussed these days. Um, Joanna Southcott was a self-proclaimed prophet who uh, lived to the ripe old age of 64 and was essentially an English country version of Nostradamus, really. She made prophecies and uh, had some, some real sway. I mean, at one point, her, uh, her band of followers were... were suspected to be over a hundred thousand people that oh. believed her and would come from far and wide to hear her preach in london and and the surrounding areas throughout the late i think it was late 17th century early 18th century and they were known as southcottians and they were you know a quasi religious cult based around her and she uh, she famously said at the age i think she was about 64 that she was about to give birth to the messiah she suffered from a medical condition, which made her bloat. So she looked pregnant when she actually wasn't. And then she took ill and died um, and didn't give birth to the Messiah at all. 
and then her devotees kidnapped her body because they were convinced that she would rise from the dead. Oh, wow. And it was only when bits of her started falling off that they decided they should get her buried. (laughs) Oh, man. But there's an interesting connection to this and the tree kind of brings it into the modern era. A hundred, I think, like I said, it's about a hundred years later, 1927, when Joanna Southcott died, she had this famous chest that was apparently full of prophecies that would be opened, and it had to be opened in front of all the bishops of England to prepare us for the future yet to come. Okay. Um, and so nobody had knew where this box was. It was a closely guarded streaker. And then in the late 20s, Harry Price appeared, claiming to have Joanna Southcott's box. And he press-ganged a, a, very, uh, <laughs> a, a very unhappy bishop to be witness to him opening the box, which was found to be full of just stuff, nothing, just like bits of scraps of paper. It's like Al Capone's um, safe. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and a lottery ticket and a gun. Okay. And that was it. However, of course, the South Cottians said that this was not true. It was It was blasphemous. And then... Strangely, four years later, Joanna's tree catches fire. Uh, I'm not saying the two events are linked, but I find it odd that her tree combusted four years after. Because there was still a... Obviously, by this point, she didn't have thousands of devotees. She probably had dozens. Right. Um, but there are some people still out there who claim to be South Cotians. Oh, really? So this survives to the modern, modern era? Yeah, but it's, you know, it's very, very minimal. Dalston Hall, Cumbria. Sarah, pseudonym, wrote to tell me her story about her experiences when she lived in this wonderful old hall. The house was built in around 1500 by John Dalston as a magnificent residence for his family. A west wing was added around 1556 and the beautiful building remained in the same family for a couple of centuries and through many generations. It finally changed hands in 1761. After several changes of owners, more extensions and changes to the facade, it was finally converted into a luxury hotel in 1971. From the outside, it looks a bit like a castle, set in very attractive grounds. Sarah's family moved into the warden's house at around 1962 or 63, when her father became the warden of the estate. She explained how the estate had a long driveway, which at the end forks left to go to the warden's house and to the right to go to the hall itself. At that time, the hall was being used for a residential training centre and they would therefore have a number of guests staying there at any one time. Both her father, her mother and also herself worked for the hall. Sarah had been working in the hall one late shift and was walking back along the drive to go home. It was around 10pm in the evening and although it was autumn, The night was clear and not too cold. The driveway was unlit, but there was enough starlight and moonlight that she could quite easily see her way, and in any case, she was very familiar with the route and could easily navigate it in the dark without any problems. Sarah explained, As I reached the fort and turned towards our house, a hooded figure came from within, crossed silently across the gravel drive in front of me and merged into the hedge. My mum was very fond of her duffel coat, So my first response was to think that it was her coming to meet me with the hood of her coat up. Sarah only realised that she was seeing the infamous grey lady ghost which haunts the hall when the figure disappeared into the hedge. The apparition was only about a hundred yards from her 
are quite clearly seen. On another occasion, whilst driving home as a passenger in her boyfriend's car at about 10.30pm one evening along the same stretch of driveway, she suddenly felt an overwhelming sense of fear and that something truly evil was close by. She described it as a seriously frightening experience, even though there was nothing to physically see or hear. She was about 17 years old at the time, and she became so distressed by the sense of evil all around her that her boyfriend stopped the car to try and help her. The last encounter Sarah told me about was about one where she and some school friends sneaked into the room above the library in the hall itself and decided to conduct a Ouija board. At first nothing seemed to happen, but then one of her friends became very disturbed, saying that she could sense something evil close by pushing at her mind. The poor girl became so frightened that she fainted. So, Paul, as I understand it, Dalston Hall is, is a pretty famous haunted location. Yeah, it was on one of the early series of Most Haunted. There's a few strange ghosts and, and things. Um, you know, people have reported have been dragged about by their hair, usually women. There's a strange character called Mr. Fingernails. Nothing about that name sounds good. Yeah, apparently you can just hear the sort of sound of nails being scraped down a... Like the noise of, of nails down a blackboard, I think. Oh, God. Um, but it's a, it's a beautiful building in a, in a beautiful part of, of, the, of England. I found a uh, an article from the London Telegraph from 1996 about Dalston Hall, and I kind of love this because this seemed like someone trying to connect dots that maybe cannot be connected. This is the, the gist of it. It says, uh, ghosts, fire alarm, ignored. <laughs> a fire at the Dalston Hall Hotel in Carlisle, Cumbria could perhaps have been avoided, claims manageress Patricia Crouch, if staff had heeded warnings given by Lady Jane, the ghost of a 16th century serving wench. I, I love that in 1996, we're still using wench, for fuck's sakes. <laughs> Anyways, the ghost of a 16th century serving wench who's said to haunt the hotel. According to the journal, the blaze was started by a candle in the dining room. As Ms. Crouch told the paper, we should have realized something like this was going to happen. There have been several incidents this week that should have warned us. Two nights before the fire, a candle in the hotel's baronial hall apparently lit itself. Also, a glass smashed in the kitchen when no one was in there. An encyclopedia was taken off the shelf in the library and left on the couch, said Mrs. Crouch. If we'd looked at which page it was open on, we might have had more of a clue. Now, the thing <laughs> is, never in there does it say what page it was actually open to, that it was open to like, you know, F is for fire. She's working so hard to make those connections. I, I'm a little bit worried she's going to strain something. <laughs> I'm more intrigued how, how she wasn't perturbed that Mrs. Crouch found an encyclopedia on the couch. I'm, I'm kind of wondering why they have an encyclopedia hanging around the place at all in 1996. Every good hall would have a, a, a full run of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Or as we like to call it, a list of all the sins of the British Empire. <laughs> all the things we've done right in the world. <laughs> Perfectly executed, no notes. How could I have made you right, Paul? <laughs> Boy, was I mistaken. <laughs> Hurrah for king and country. <laughs> Just not that king. Just not that. It might not be that king for long anyways. So. <laughs> Who knows what's happening? There are already strange conspiracy theories circulating around the country. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised, but but tell me, what kind of conspiracy theories? And just for our listeners who don't know, King Charles, is, it has, it's been announced, has cancer. Yes, he's, he's been diagnosed with, with cancer. And, uh, and so uh, some of the conspiracy theories that I've been informed of today by my uh, more knowledgeable colleagues at work 
is that apparently there is a theory out there going around that William has has bumped Kate off, and that's why she's not been seen. Not the fact that she's also recovering from surgery because she's had a hysterectomy, and therefore clearly doesn't want to be photog- photographed because she's probably a little worse for wear. There is there are people out there who believe that uh, William has is uh, taken upon itself to uh, get rid of half his family, and though it's Henry the Eighth or something. I was going to say, yeah, the the serial killer king. That's it's been a while <laughs> since we had one of those. Yes, it's it's usually the kind of thing you would draw at the line with the Tudors. I was going to say, it's a lot harder to be a mad monarch in the age of cell phone cameras, but what do I know? <laughs> Who knows what goes on behind the walls of Sandringham? Very true. And so we'll step outside the walls, because I want to ask you about the thing I was going to ask you about in the last segment. So the last segment mentioned mist. They said these mists seem to come from nowhere. And again, as I was listening to the most recent episode of Mysteries and Monsters, you guys brought up something which I was really curious to know more about. And I believe the name was Lee Hempel. Yep. As soon as you said mist, I knew you were going to ask me a bit. So you, you were talking about this farm that seems to have these strange mists and has captured some of them on camera. Can you talk a bit yeah, about that? Yeah, so Lee contacted Linda during, so I think it was the noughties. And this is, uh, sorry, researcher Linda Godfrey, folks. Yeah, Linda Godfrey, yeah. Because obviously he'd found some footprints in one of his fields that stopped in the middle of the field. They just stopped. And uh, and he'd noticed strange things and hearing strange noises and uh, animals kept being taken and things. And it was all a bit strange. And so he started setting up game cams to keep an eye on it. And there is some footage out there. I'm not sure if it's on Linda's website, actually. If you go to lindagodfrey.com, I think the articles are still up there and the photos are still there of this mist that appears above the carcass of a sheep, I believe it was. And then the mist dissipates and the carcass is no longer there. Wow. And this was quite a regular occurrence. It was, it's, it's become a sort of Wisconsin version of Skinwalker Ranch in regards to it being a, a high strangeness venue of all kinds. You know, there's all sorts supposed to be going on. And I'm, uh, I know Chad's been out there and uh, a few other researchers. So it's uh, it's certainly something because he's he's a very I think he used to be a college professor. So he's a, he's a learned man. He's not one for um high flights of fancy, you would suggest. That's the owner of this farm, Lee Hempel. Yes, I believe I believe he was uh, a professor of sorts, I believe. I might be wrong. So now have you seen some of this footage? Yeah, yeah, I've seen the that's what I'm trying to think if they're on Linda's site. I have seen the pictures. I think it was a, a deer carcass you guys were talking about on the episode. I'll have to dig. I've gone back to 2017 and I can't see any of them, but I'm deaf. I know 100% I've seen the footage. 100%. But yes, as I say, people have, have um, continued Linda's research and working with Lee. He seems quite keen just to find out what's going on. He's not suggesting it. he's bought a portal into another dimension. Right. <laughs> Unlike some people we could refer to. Yes, absolutely. No no names mentioned at all. But um, he's a curious man and he, he wants answers. I mean, it, it seems like it, at first blush, you might think Wisconsin is an odd spot to find something like that. But I, I think as we're discovering, Wisconsin, or as you have discovered and I'm learning <laughs> through you, Wisconsin is, is much weirder than people give it yes, credit for being. Absolutely. The Badger State is indeed a strange place. This story comes from Pickering Castle in North Yorkshire. Dating back to the years of the Norman Conquest from 1069 onwards, Pickering Castle was originally a Mott and Bailey castle built from timber and earth. 
Over the years, like many of its counterparts, it was replaced by a stonework castle, added to and further fortified as the centuries went by. Its position, with a steep cliff on the west side, gave it a great advantage as a defensive structure. Assaults on the castle itself were made even more difficult by the deep defensive ditches that were dug around its outer walls. Today it is quite remarkably well-preserved given its age, but this is largely due to the fact that it did not play a particularly active role in either the English Civil War or the War of the Roses, which meant it did not take as much heavy damage as many of its peers. It has for many long years boasted the reputation of being haunted by a monk who is seen drifting through its ground with his arms outstretched, as if he is carrying something. One witness told me that around 2009, she was out one day in the early afternoon walking her dog around the edges of the castle, which is a site open to the public, and heard the sound of a horse coming up close behind her. Pulling her dog in close to her heels with his leash, she stepped into the grass verge to make way for the rider, and then turned to look at them as they approached. There was nothing there. The same lady was out walking her dog around the front of the castle site on another occasion, at about 10 a.m. one bright morning, when she suddenly noticed a large sphere of white mist hanging above the moat. It was a distinctly formed area of mist, and it was drifting slowly towards her, so that she was able to watch it for some time and marvel at its strangely perfect spherical shape. She was so surprised at the form of it that she actually took off her glasses and checked them for smears to make sure the shape was truly that of the mist itself and not an optical illusion. She said that it appeared to be about three feet in diameter. She has never seen anything like it before or since. She lived at the time in one of the cottages not far from the castle. In order to reach the street from her front door, there was a narrow stone passage to walk down. On one occasion, she had clipped her dog's leash on to take him out to perform his toilet and had entered the passageway when suddenly a wall of thick white mist swept up the narrow corridor and enveloped her and the dog. She described it as so thick and fast in its movement towards them that she actually flinched and ducked as it came up the passage. At first, she thought nothing much of it, but seconds later, she reached the end of the passage and stepped out into a cool, clear, crisp, completely mist-free night. One person wrote in to say that there was a legend that a ghostly monk would walk around the moat at midnight, and as teenagers, local children would often dare each other to go and wait by the moat to see if they could see the specter. Another remembered that the story was about a female spirit known by some as Mad Mary, and by others as White Annie, who would apparently only appear at certain times of the year. There was a rumor that saying her name three times would conjure her spirit, but they said they had tried to no avail. And so, Paul, I'm very curious. I mean, this is essentially North Yorkshire. I know, not the same, but this is your backyard. Yeah, Pickering. Beautiful. It's on the, uh, just before the moors start. It's a stunning place to be if you drop on it in the right time of year and the weather and the uh, the cloud lifts you can see for miles. It's a, it's a stunning sight. And as as they said in the uh, in the story, it's not like a I think people think oh well it's it's a well-preserved castle. It you know most of it's not there. It's essentially fallen down, but it wasn't blown up by anybody. So <laughs> it's just just the nature of the area that's taken it down rather than the the war of the roses or the English civil war. Just living in Yorkshire just takes it out of you. Yeah, yeah, especially where it is. Because Pickering is a, a, is a strange location because it's essentially halfway between York and Scarborough and it's the biggest town in that particular area. There's not much around it. So it would have been a great site for a 
for an encampment. And it's probably why it was chosen, because it is on a slight rise, because it was built on top of some original sort of earthworks, which nobody's really sure who built those. So it was already elevated when they built the uh, built the wood building on it, and then obviously it was replaced by stone. So it was already in an elevated position at that point. So it was clearly an area, because of its location, you can see for miles around you. So you can see people coming from every direction. So who would the likely candidates be then uh, to have built the earthworks? Um, I mean, to be fair, it, it could be any one of Bronze Age Britons, really, Bronze and Iron Age. There's a lot of places up there where we've got barrows and things. Um, I mean, you're not too far away from, um, I mean, you're a little bit further north from where Paul Sinclair is. But um, you've obviously got a lot of strange places around there. Obviously, as we mentioned the other week, Warren Percy, the vampire village, is to the south. By about 20, 30 miles away, I think. So you've got some strange locations around there. Like I say, the, as it, the North York Moors was a place that I'd never really experienced until about four years ago. And myself and Julie had a, had a few days away up there and took the wrong turning. <laughs> we went to uh, an incredible waterfall known as High Force, which is where the River Tees basically squeezes through this narrow gorge. And it's just incredible powerful torrent of water that you can stand at the side and watch from a, a very safe distance. And uh, when we were leaving, we should have gone left and we went right. We were basically 30 minutes away from where we were trying to get to if we'd gone left. And we didn't. We went right. Oh, no. And then, so we basically ended up driving through the York, North Yorkshire Moors for two and a half hours. And it was absolutely beautiful. It was stunning. It was the best wrong turning I've ever taken in my life. It was beautiful. It was it was late summer. The heather was out across the moors because there's nothing up there. There's farms. You might go through a village where they've got seven houses and a shop and all you could see was sheep and cows and there was just rolling moorland, heathers and stuff. The perfect place for werewolves to live, really. It was beautiful. It was just, just one of those naturally beautiful places and I'd never seen any of that before in my life, despite the fact it's like 75, 80 miles away from where I live here in Sheffield. Right. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a very fortuitous, but there's loads of bits around there. There's stories of um, shucks, giant black dog, ghosts. You've got old Roman roads littering the countryside and, and things. So the Romans were around there as well. So um, there's numerous candidates it could have been. I found a newspaper article from 2002 from the Northern Echo, and I, I kind of love this, the head custodian at the time of Pickering Castle was trying to raise money for children in need. And she did a, an overnight vigil in the tower with another former custodian. And I got to say, that sounds like a blast to just have an excuse to stay out all night in some creepy ass old tower. I, I don't even know if I need the excuse of charity. I think if someone just said, hey, creepy tower sleepover, I would just have my sleeping bag Absolutely. ready. I would imagine if that was a, a beautiful summer's evening, that would be phenomenal. Oh, I bet. There is also stories of strange pixie-like creatures seen lurking around Pickering Castle. Oh, really? I think they've got a walk that you can do, which is known as the Pixie Trail around the castle for children. And you can you can find like secret pixie homes and, and fairy houses and things. But yeah, like sort of small... Quickly moving little creatures are seen darting around the castle walls. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so yeah it's uh, it's uh, i think because of what it what it is and where it is it, it's the kind of place that would attract a haunting it'd be a perfect place for a ghost to live well they got to keep uh, was it mavis jackson gould company for a <laughs> night now there's there's a custodian's name if they ever heard one <laughs> how close would sickling hall be to Pickering. Oh, um, I don't think it's that far. Basically, the reason I ask is I found this article on a website that has actually since deleted it, so I'm not going to credit them because they can fuck themselves. But I found it in the Wayback Machine, and it referenced Weatherby. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Sickling say, Hall. Sickling Hall. I was going to say I was going to place near there. I think of is a small village outside of Weatherby. So Weatherby's a bit further south. So basically, Weatherby is the other side of York. You've got Leeds, and then you've got Weatherby to the north of Leeds, and then to the east of Weatherby, you've got York, and then you've got Pickering. So I'd say it's probably about 40, 40 50 miles. Okay. So n- not that far, all things considered. Not in a uh, non-British person's concept of distance, no. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Well, I'm just going to share a little bit of this with you. It, it was from the, uh, the Clapgate oh. Inn. In the late 1970s, are you familiar? No, it's just a wonderful name. Clapgate Inn. It it is. (laughs) What went on there? (laughs) A lot of penicillin. (laughs) So the quote comes from a woman named Dorothy Pelter, who apparently contacted Weatherby News after reading someone else's account of living at the Clapgate Inn during the 60s and 70s. And Mrs. Pelter says, we lived opposite the Clapgate Inn in the late 1970s. Our house used to be a smithy at one time. If the pub was 500 years old, the cottage must be. When I woke up one night, there was an old lady's head with a bonnet on it just standing at the foot of the bed. It was the first week we moved in. It was only once, and I just forgot it. Don't know how you do that. My husband said, no, you didn't see that. <laughs> oh, okay, well, thanks. Boy, I'm glad I got you here to, to uh, verify the results of my own eyes. And then she goes on to say, but it brought it back when I read the Weatherby News. Miss Nottingham was in the pub when we first moved in, but then a chap called Ted moved in and took over. My daughter, you worked for extra money at Linton Springs, and they all said a ghost used to walk the corridors. She thought our house was ever so spooky. And uh, yeah, I just, because that was close-ish, I thought I'd share that. (laughs) Because mostly I love the idea that the husband was like, no, no, you didn't. What are you talking about? Go fetch my dinner. <laughs> That's right. Bring me my slippers and, oh, you're hitting me with the rolled up paper. <laughs> what are you doing with that sharpened mop? <laughs> no, Mavis. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, once you get past York, you uh, you stumble across all kinds of strange little places around there. God, well, I got to get a, make a trip up there one of these days. I've seen so little of that part yeah, of the country. It's, it's, it's forgotten because you're not on the coast. And like I say, other than Pickering, there's bugger all there. And then you get onto the moors and it leads you up to sort of Durham and uh, Middlesbrough and that kind of Newcastle and Sunderland. But it's, it's phenomenal. Beautiful summer's day up there is, is one of the greatest sights you will ever witness. Mabel in Ayrshire, Crossagle Abbey. Crossagle Abbey today is a fascinatingly picturesque ruined monument standing beside a small road in Ayrshire, Scotland. Properly named the Abbey of St. Mary of Crossagle, it's open for public viewing for a modest fee. Much of the stonework is standing, and it forms a suitably atmospheric backdrop for the story of a ghostly monk that walks the ruins still, and possibly 
a boggle of a stonemason. A boggle is a Scottish word for a ghost or supernatural being. There is a wonderfully preserved circular doorcot in the southwest corner of the abbey, better known south of the border as a dovecot, and rumour also has it that there is a secret underground tunnel leading from here to nearby Baltasan Castle. The ghost is said to be that of the abbot of Crossagle. He was captured by the fourth Earl of Cassillis, who took his prisoner to Culzine Castle and there roasted him over a fire until he gave in and signed the abbey and its lands over to his tormentor. Several people wrote to me about the monk of the abbey, so it's clearly still a well-known legend in the area, although conversely, a few people who had lived in the area most of their lives and even used to play in the ruins as children knew nothing of its reputation. One chap explained that one of his ancestors was named Bailey of Crossagle in 1523. One lady remembered hearing about the monks as a child, but also remembered tales of the ghost of a grey lady there too. One person said that their friend's husband, normally a very sceptical, pragmatic and down-to-earth type of man, swears he saw the ghost of the monk whilst driving past the ruins one night. Another lady wrote to tell me that she used to live in the tiny whitewashed farmhouse just opposite the remains of the abbey when she was around 10 years old in around 2006, and her family lived there until 2012. At first, she was very happy living there, despite its rather remote location in terms of immediate neighbours. But then she started having a series of reoccurring nightmares. In every dream, there would be a sense of war going on, of fear and conflict, and each nightmare ended with her dying in the dream when a bomb fell on the house. The dream seemed unusually dark for an otherwise normal ten-year-old girl, but to be fair, as she says, they were learning about the world wars in school at the time, and the house itself had a small metal bomb shelter built into the back garden. She had a small sister who was around five years younger than herself, but just starting to really grasp full language and becoming a right little chatterbox, the way small children often are. One particular day, she was out in the garden playing by the swings. But curiously, she was just pushing the empty swing rather than sitting on it herself and chattering away. Her big sister tried to get on the swing, thinking that perhaps she wanted to have a go and have someone to push her. But the little girl started crying instead and became very upset. She kept trying to tell her older sibling that Robin was sitting in the swing and it was his turn to swing, not hers. From then onwards, whenever something was broken or a wall got mysteriously drawn upon by small hands with crayons, her sister would insist that Robin was just trying to get her into trouble. Very often, the older children in the house would catch a glimpse of someone rushing past behind them in the bathroom mirror would hear quiet voices talking in an adjoining room. But when they went in, no one was there. Upstairs there was a long corridor with a bedroom opening off it, and the children would hear the sound of feet running up and down it at night. And most creepily, it would sometimes sound as if they were dragging their hands along the walls as they ran. Her own best friend would really try to avoid coming over to stay for the night, because she said that all the activity around this corridor and the bathroom really freaked her out. The activity would start around early evening time usually and carry on right through until the early hours of the morning. She never established whether there was a link between Robin and her own recurring dreams, but it does make you wonder. First, I, I just got to say that uh, if you're trying to take all my stuff, 
and you're prepared to <laughs> roast me on a spit over a fire, you can just have it. Yeah, there's, uh, there's lots of uh, lovely tales like that from that particular era. Was it the, the time of the terrors? Uh, no. <laughs> I disagree. If it involved guys being roasted for their stuff, that's the time of terrors. <laughs> yeah, there's, there was a lot of uh, bad barons running amok in, those, uh, in that era. So, do do you have another story of bad baronage? Uh, well, strangely, one of the ones we were talking about earlier on, Jenny Southcott and her tree, and somebody said the ghost of Geoffrey de, de Manville. He was a piece of shit. <laughs> really? Yeah, he was another one. He stole loads of land and uh, caused uh, a real problem because he's he integrated with with one of the forgotten kings of England, King Stephen. Um, which nobody really remembers. It's not a very kingly name, let's face it. Steve. No, Stevie. And Stevie was having some problems with his sister Matilda. And so Geoffrey was playing them off against each other. And Stephen had to give him like loads of land and, and property and, and pay him off to keep him on side. And uh, he was just a shithouse. And then he got too big for his boots. So he, <laughs> he, uh, he basically was arrested for treason. And... Um, and as, as compensation, he basically had to give everything up he'd been given. And he went off to terrorise the people in Norfolk, who eventually got sick of him. And during a skirmish where he was trying to steal another castle, somebody shot him by accident and he died. <laughs> ah, the old, the old shot him by accident. I think, to be honest, we could be here till Easter talking about shithead barons of, of the middle ages in this <laughs> this country i just love that we, we so crave the the madman's boot on our neck that we've recreated that age but with billionaires now yeah. i think there was another one who lived in the northeast who was who was obsessed with like terrorizing scots and even when the war finished he was just like kidnapping people off the streets and torturing them and eventually everybody got sick of him and he was held captive and tried and found guilty and his punishment was that they took him into the town square and invited everybody to come and cut bits off him. And so people were just coming up and chopping his finger off and poking his eyes out and removing his genitalia and stuff with, with scissors and things. And ju they just cut him to bits. Alive. They said, cyber truck my ass. <laughs> and I've forgotten the gentleman's name, but I'm sure he was the northeast on the borders. But he was obsessed with, with killing the Scots and then he was told not to do it. He ended up having a thing with the leader of the local sort of territorials who were paid by the English to terrorise the Scots, and he ended up accidentally killing her in a bit of sex play on the rack. And uh, that's what led to his overthrow. I've forgotten his bloody name, though. I'm going back to Age of Terrors. These people go hard. <laughs> yeah, and so they weren't best pleased about that, and his, uh, his days were numbered after that occurred, and they ended up capturing him, to, chopping him to bits in the, uh, you know, it's one of those great things. I'm thinking about this guy, the fact that he was paid to harass the Scots. I don't know a lot of Scottish people, but I know that they do not take well to being no, annoyed. No, it's, uh, it's, it's very surprising they have such a low opinion of the English. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, considering you, you and I were just uh, venerating all the wonder you have brought to the world, I don't understand why why there is such a concerted dislike for the British. Absolutely. If it wasn't for us, they wouldn't be able to speak English. <laughs> well, I, no, I'm, just, uh, I'm getting a note from my producer. William Wallace is kicking in your door right now. 
Oh, nope, it's just Mel Gibson. He's drunk. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. Nothing new there then. <laughs> no, no, he's just shouting anti-Semitic slurs and throwing up in potted plants. How much he hates the British. Yep, yep them too. <laughs> this next story comes from RAF Chicksands on the former site of Chicksands Priory in Bedfordshire. Chicksands was a base for the United States Air Force from 1950 until 1997 when it returned to the control of the RAF and parts of it became home of the Borough Council. It is named after the Gilbertine Priory, known as Chicksands Priory, which was built here in 1152, and parts of which still remain within the site as a listed building. It is also the source of the haunting of the site. There is a record that in 1954, an airman was asleep in his lodgings on RAF Chicksands when he woke in the middle of the night to find a woman with a dark dress and white lacy collar stood at the side of his bed. She moved to the foot of his bed and vanished. In 1957, someone saw what they thought was the head and shoulders of a nun. In 1960, the apparition of a woman dressed in black was seen in the picture gallery next to the King James room. She then disappeared through a wall. Popular legend ascribes the ghost to one Berta Rosata, a nun supposedly walled up alive for getting pregnant. Historically, there is some doubt about this tale. I also found a couple of accounts from people who had experiences there. One chap recalled working with an electrician who had so many weird things happen while he was trying to work that he walked off site and refused to come back. Then a waitress wrote to tell me about her own experiences during a time when her husband was working there in the late 1990s. Joanne told me that her husband was part of the implementation team for the Ministry of Defense who had taken over the base from the Americans. The ancient priory itself was found to be in a bit of a state of disrepair, so funding was made available to preserve the building and make it useful as the officer's mess. Because of her local knowledge and expertise in certain subjects, Joanne found herself being asked to help with some of the redecoration and appointment for some of the rooms. Whilst the refurbishments were going on, she had to make quite frequent visits to the site. She says that on quite a few occasions, as she drove up to the main entrance for the priory, she would see the dark figure of a monk in the doorway, always in shadow and always with his hood drawn up. One day she was up on the scaffolding in the main part of the building, wearing her hard hat and high-vis protective clothing. She was discussing some of the building works with the Molem's builders and some of the senior officers. She found herself having to interrupt their conversation to say, what on earth are children doing in here? She could clearly hear the kids running up and down and laughing and assumed one of the officers had brought their children to look at the building, and was quite cross about that, as it wasn't really a suitable place to bring children at all, let alone allow them to run around playing. Everyone went quiet and looked at her oddly. Then one of the builders tentatively ventured to mention that they often had to stop work because they heard children, but there was never anyone there. Another day, she and the project manager had walked down a corridor to a room at the far end, they were having difficulty with this particular room as they were finding it very hard to agree on what the color scheme should be. As they finished their discussion, they both turned to leave the room and both felt a very distinct push as if something was physically trying to push them out of the room. She was later told that the cleaners didn't like going in there to clean and even the military personnel, hardened soldiers who were not easily scared, didn't like to sleep in there. The vaulted room was turned into the officer's bar, 
and several times just after midnight, she and others present experienced the distinct smell of lilies and incense filling the room and saw faint shadowy figures of monks appear. And I, I got to tell you, Paul, I found a quote from an author who has recently written a book about Chicksands Priory. Uh, the author is a guy named Damien O'Dell. Oh, yes. You're familiar with him, eh? Yeah, he's a paranormal investigator. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he, he spent about 10 years researching and writing a book about Chicksands. It's called uh, Chicksands Priory, England's Most Haunted House. And it sounds interesting. I, I'd actually like to pick up a copy, but uh, you can only get it from his website, which isn't super useful. You know, it's sort of like if you want to order a book from Damien, uh, leave an X in chalk on your mailbox and meet him down by the uh, Costa Coffee at 3 p.m. on Thursday. <laughs> but uh, anyways, it, he was being interviewed in the Comet about the book. And I understand why he would say this. I understand what he was trying to put across, but I feel like he probably could have phrased it better. He said, they are military people. Many of the sightings have been seen by officers in the army and RAF, and these people aren't imaginative. <laughs> uh, it might be the very definition of a backhanded compliment. Yeah, damned by faint praise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I get what you're saying, man, but there's got to be a better way. <laughs> these fucking dummies couldn't have made this up. <laughs> Jesus. Chicksons is one of those strange places that the, um, the British military... Uh, commandeered and turned into a, a base. Um, we had a lot of them, um, and it was um, it was used for code breaking, along with um, the people behind the the breaking of the Enigma machine at Bletchley Park. Oh no, kidding! Have you heard other stories from Chicksands? I've lost count the amount of times I've heard the phrase "the most haunted." Oh. Of course, yeah, <laughs> the that's most fair. Haunted place in England. I think most places of a certain vintage claim to be the most haunted house in, in England. Makes sense. Some less provable than others. Um, I'm looking at you, Borley Rectory. Um, <laughs> is that, are they doing the sort of the paranormal equivalent of stuffing a sock down the front of their underpants? Oh, no, no yeah. Borley Rectories are, yeah. I, I mean, it's one of them, there might have been something interesting, but there's a lot of bullshit attached to it. Right. Um, and it's, once again, it's one of those, it's, because it burnt down, there's not a lot you can kind of pull from it. People claim to have had strange experiences there and then obviously Harry Price got involved and it was a very controversial case to all intents and purposes. Um, but also there are other hauntings, strangely enough, ghost nuns and monks seen around the remnants of it and the um, I believe there's a little church next to Borley Rectory that's still standing um, that people have claimed to have seen nuns wandering through the gardens. Obviously there's no nuns there. Um, so it is, but uh, yeah, Chicksands is it's one of those places, because it's such a, a closely guarded secret, it's been a place steeped in mystery for a long time. And often when you get a place like that where you've got no access at all, it tends to build up a lot of stuff. I know the Rosetta story, a lot of people don't put any, any truth in it because <laughs> being walled up in this country, there's, there's very... It's one of those myths, I think, that's developed over time that there's not much evidence it went on. And I think it's become one of those sort of romantic old origin stories for a lot of ghosts where there's very few, if any, cases of actual provable skeletons being found in walls and stuff. Right. Yeah, I, I found an article that suggested that was something cooked up by a family in the 18th century 
to give it a bit of a bit of gothic uh, air or whatever you want to call it. That'd be uh, quite interesting. I've been watching a documentary about gothic, the history of the gothic this week. Oh, well. really? Very much so. Yeah. What's to do with the Brontes and Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker and Oscar Wilde and the like? A lot of very pale, horny people coughing into lace hankies. <laughs> Yes, I like a documentary where I have, where I listen to extremely intelligent and well knowledgeable people use incredibly persuasive and powerful language that can often befuddle and bewilder. But I find I find it deeply enriching for some reason. No, I get it. I like hanging around people who are smarter than me too. I think you can always learn by listening to people cleverer than yourself. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's why that's why I've got you here. <laughs> oh you. <laughs> <laughs> Winchcombe on Rushley Lane in Gloucestershire. When I inquired locally, I was told that Rushley Lane in Winchcombe is often referred to by locals as the Rushleys. I had come across a discussion about a possible haunting there and was looking for more information and other witnesses. One lady had commented that in the early 1970s, a relative of hers had had a paper round which included this area. He would cycle round each day delivering the papers to the addresses as directed and earning himself some pocket money for his troubles. Paper rounds were once a very common way in the UK for older children to earn themselves some extra cash. On this particular day, he had cycled his route as usual, but at one point where there is a hedge lining the lane, he suddenly saw a lady in a long dress step down through the hedge and stand upon the edge of the lane. He described her as wearing a Victorian-style gown, a long and quite posh dress. Perhaps unsurprisingly, He'd put his head down and cycled home just as fast as his legs would propel his bicycle. Another lady had then commented that one of her relatives had been driving along that same lane and saw a woman wearing what appeared to be a hooded cape standing quietly by the hedgerow. Startled at her out-of-date attire, he'd pulled the car over and gone to look at her in a rear-view mirror. There was no sign of her. One lady told me that she thought there used to be an old school along there many years ago, and she'd been told the lane was haunted when she was a child. She could recall being taken out for a walk with one of her friends along there, both of them happily pushing their dollies in their toy prams. Another local lady thought it was not a school there, but actually the laundry rooms built to serve the nearby Sudley Castle. Two more witnesses came forward to speak about hauntings in nearby Cowell Lane. One lady said that both she and her husband sometimes experienced a sort of force field that would try and push against you as you tried to walk through it into their house. A gentleman said that he'd seen misty figures of monks walking across Cowell Lane. It was when he was a child, and he and his pal were in what used to be the field behind the library, which apparently is now a car park. They were sitting on a fence swinging their legs and talking, and they were overlooking Cowell Lane from their vantage point. They suddenly saw some monks walking across the road, but the misty figures were only visible from just below the waist upwards, as though they were wading through the tarmac rather than walking on it. He's often wondered if they were actually walking on the level of the road as it was during their day. Another lady recalled that her mother had also seen this half-a-monk in Cow Lane, and yet another joined in the discussion to say she had seen them too. She'd also seen one walking between the church and the abbey gates. One person was able to speak of a grandfather who had seen a monk floating across the road on Greet Road, so it is very apparent that spectral monks have been seen all around Winchcombe over a number of decades at least. A little further away in Beckett's Lane, 
one lady knew of an elderly gentleman who had been working at the potteries there, and one night had heard the sound of marching. Poking his head outside to investigate, he'd seen the weird sight of a group of Roman soldiers marching along the road. But again, their legs were out of sight, as if they were marching on a different level, and this sighting would have been at some time in the 1920s or so. And I, I know we've talked about that before, these ghosts who seem to be marching where the road would have been before. But I, I thought it was interesting that there is a story north of town of that of Winchcombe where they the ghost is walking two feet above the ground. Yep. Which is is odd. And you wonder why what the explanation for that would be. Probably the the exact same reason that you only see half of somebody, that the road's been leveled down. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And they just—they look like they're floating, but they're walking, you know, on something that, if it if it is that kind of stone tape repeating phantom, then it's it's re- reporting. And and uh, Roman ghosts are always interesting as well because they're not reported a lot, but obviously very similar to Harry Martindale's famous sighting in the Treasurer's House in York back in the fifties. Um, but that similar, there's one of the famous Stocksbridge ghosts sightings. Um, was by a father and son. The father was training for the London Marathon and they were out jogging and they saw a strange hooded figure sort of walking as though it was inside the road, uh, which uh, is included in the Strange But True episode about Stocksbridge, along with some absolute nonsense. But their their witness account is, is very credible and also the fact he's wearing very short shorts. Never has somebody looked like a dad who runs in the 1980s than that. (laughs) I feel like the 80s shorts, like the 80s running shorts, that was a very particular look. Yeah, it's a good job the jockstrap was invented. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of indecent exposure charges waiting otherwise. Yes, we've 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 all fallen foul of those fashion choices we made in that particular period. Not me. I didn't wear shorts that had my balls hanging out. Well, sometimes you didn't know that was going to happen, mate. Until you were were flying down the wing at football and and suddenly you realised you could feel a breeze that wasn't there before. I have never more been happier with my decision not to engage in sport. (laughs) Yeah, I I considered my choices that day as well. (laughs) The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Yes, the words I heard that day have haunted me forever. Oh, no. I must know. Luke, he's cock come out. <laughs> I don't know what I expected, but yeah, no. That makes sense. <laughs> oh, that may. Oh, I would hear yes. that in my nightmares. It's brilliant, <laughs> but I would hear that in my nightmares. Yeah. I kicked the ball out of play and I went and uh, re- re- uh, redressed myself in a more uh, fitting in a more, more supportive garment and return to play. <laughs> I'll be back in a sec. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think I'm, I think I'm back in control of this. At least I scored a great goal afterwards. Kind of made up for it. There you go. You've got to change the news cycle. <laughs> a wonder goal. With my left foot as well. Not my strongest. I thought you were going to say something else. <laughs> Thump. Yeah. No, you'd know if you'd scored one like that. <laughs> <laughs> Your face would be on the British flag. <laughs> oh, man. 
Folks, this has been our second dive into the stories of Ruth Roper Wilde, looking at stories of ghostly monks. Have you seen a ghostly monk? If so, shoot us an email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. We would love, love, love to hear your stories. We have a listener story episode coming up soon. We, of course, have one more episode featuring the stories from Ruth's books, These Haunted Times. And again, you can get those everywhere. You get your books, although you can also read them through Kindle Unlimited. It is a great deal. Ruth still gets paid, and you get to read some pretty incredible troves of modern-day British ghost stories. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be. It's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT. That's S-H-O-U-T. To 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, Please know that we've both been where you are, and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. The ghost story guys are Luke Greensmith, who helps us find our stories, Tanya Downing, who manages our Facebook community and assists with editing, Joseph Camo, who manages our YouTube account and is, of course, host of The Cardinal Rule, available on YouTube, Adam Lynch, who edits our video. He's also the host of the Weekly Creep podcast with Dulce. Sarah Kent, who manages our Reddit community. And the conductor of our paranormal steamboat is Mr. Brennan Stoll. Poop, poop. <laughs> steamboat Bren. You can do that now. He's out. He's in public domain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no trademark. Woo-woo. Can a shitty slasher movie be far behind? 
Who knows? They're making a sequel to Winnie the Pooh. That's partially my fault because I paid money well to go done. see it. So that's on me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm actually very sorry. I apologize. Yeah, they make a sequel to that crappy Bigfoot film I watched because I watched it on Prime and I'll hit myself in the face with a frying pan. <laughs> You'll get a thank you letter from the director. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Bestel, <laughs> for watching our film. Because <laughs> thank of you. Thank you for shitting on our film on, on the internet. Yeah, it sent four more people to watch it. That was just <laughs> enough to get us over the line we to make it made as much one. profit as Chitty Chitty Bang Bang did in 30 years. <laughs> And of course, my friend and co-host is the one, the only, the inimitable, Paul Bestel, the paranormal Johnny Carson himself, host of Mysteries and Monsters. Paul, what's coming up on Eminem? Well, strangely this week, I am delving into the mysterious case of the Aintree Spectres, which is a couple of sightings about a group of hooded figures wandering around a suburb of outer Liverpool. And the mystery behind them being either paranormal or physical. And if so, who or what were they? So I've got that with Dr. Rob Gandhi. And we talk about a couple of interesting road ghosts, including a, a strange incident in, involving a car crash and a man being rescued, but no one called the ambulance. Oh, H how do you mean? He woke up in hospital and went to retrieve his car and thanked the local farmer for calling the ambulance. Because he crashed after seeing a ghost and, and took off, whew, drove off the lane and landed in a field. And uh, the family said, we didn't call the ambulance. So he no, he's no idea who called the ambulance that, that came to rescue him. And it was a lonely road. Very cool. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing that. And where can everyone find you online? You can find Mysteries and Monsters across all social media platforms and podcast sites. Fabulous. I'm Largely the Truth on Threads, Instagram, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd. And you can find my horror movie show, Weird Together, available everywhere. Find podcasts live. As we said at the top, this show only exists because of our patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. We are deeply, deeply grateful for each one of you. And if you want to join them in helping support this show, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghost story guys, or sign up to GSG premium via Apple podcasts. We have all kinds of tiers and levels, but we will say for a dollar a month on Patreon, you get an ad free feed. And who doesn't want that? Ads suck. And again, for more information, head to patreon.com slash ghost story guys, or sign up to GSG premium via Apple podcasts. If you want to pick up some ghost story guys, merch, head to our website, ghoststoryguys.com. We have all kinds of cool stuff. And you'll get a personalized thank you video from me and Paul if you do. Shout out to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and composer Harper Smith. You can find more from Harper at rainydaysforghosts.bandcamp.com or by searching for Rainy Days for Ghosts or Street Witch on music streaming platforms everywhere. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kurosawa of Pizzanta Music. Find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever. You get your tunes. And I guess that's going to do it. We'll be back next week. But until then, into the darkness we go.
right. sounded like someone was in my apartment. They're not. The door is still locked, but that was very strange. Uh-huh. It's the Sprite. Apparently. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Whistle and I'll come. No. <laughs> uh, Barnet or Barnett? <laughs> Barnet. 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 North okay. London. Barnet. Nice Barnet. It means, oh, have you had your hair done? Okay. Oh, yeah, it's Barnet. Uh, Barnet. No. Barnet. Barnet. Oh, now we've done that thing where it stopped making, it just doesn't make <laughs> any sense anymore. The word is Barnet. lost on the, blah, the bees, blah, blah, yeah. the bees of Barnet. We're in trouble. <laughs>